The Academy this year honors three scientists, Dr. Wilson, Dr. Schultes, and myself, who are involved with the protection of plants and animals. This, I believe, shows a very reassuring general concern for the environment. We have heard quite a bit about wealth today. Let's just take a few minutes to discover what made all this wealth possible. That is the exploitation of natural resources. Here's a statistic well worth remembering. The United States has 6% of the world's population. It uses 33% of the world's resources. So there is a price to pay for wealth, and somebody has to pay it. I'm a biologist who works mostly in third world countries to study animals so they can be better protected, to train nationals of that country so they can do their own conservation work, to work with local governments to set up reserves and implement conservation measures. Now, I'm a field biologist basically out of love for animals and a preference for life in wilderness, where I've spent most of my time in the past three and a half decades. The animals whose habits I've studied, whether mountain gorilla, panda, lion, tiger, and others, not only satisfy a sense of wonder by their elegance and beauty, but they also enable me to become an explorer. And that is an explorer both in the intellectual and scientific realm, as well as in the physical one, whether it's the Himalayan mountains or the swamps of Brazil. Many years ago, high on the forested slopes of Runga Volcano in eastern Zaire, I finally, after months of work, got mountain gorillas used to my presence. One day, when I was sitting up in a tree so I could observe the animals in the thick underbrush, a female climbed up in the tree with me and sat on the same branch. <laughs> we were both somewhat apprehensive. Uh, Later, on a snowbound slope in the Hindu Kush mountains of northern Pakistan, I stared into the frosty eyes of a snow leopard. It had killed a goat. I stayed with a cat all night, huddled behind a rock to stay out of the freezing winds in order to observe her. And still later, in China, for two months, I followed pandas or rather just their tracks, hoping to observe them without even catching a glimpse. Finally, after hard work for two months, I saw my first panda high up in a spruce tree. There was fog and rain, and dusk soon obscured the animals. So it may sound romantic to you to be field biologist, but there are problems. In a laboratory, of course, you can set up an experiment and at your own time carry the conclusion. You can't do that when you're dealing with animals. To watch them, to get some impression of their lives, takes months and years, often under dismal conditions. Yet when I first began to study animals, it was not because the research was useful, but because I found pleasure in it and because I was curious. But I soon became aware 
of a serious problem, and that is that species were declining at an alarming rate. For example, there are only half as many mountain gorillas now as there were in 1960. Only about 400 are left. With this awareness, I began to strive for an ideal beyond science, and that is to fight for the future of wildlife. You may not realize it, but the destruction of species in their habitats is now proceeding so rapidly that nature of life on Earth will soon be irrevocably changed. The species disappear quietly, slowly, with no one to note the passing of most of them. It's estimated that 10 to 30,000 species a year are vanishing. This is just a wild guess because nobody even knows how many species there are. Most of them in the world have never been scientifically described. In other words, we're in a great era of extinctions. There has been no comparable loss of species, of biological diversity, since the Cretaceous 65 million years ago, when about two-thirds of all species vanished, including the last dinosaurs. But unlike that very slow cataclysm of long ago, the present extinctions are very rapid and they're entirely man-made. The result, obviously, of an ever-increasing human population squandering its resources. Uh, Gandhi once noted, there's enough in the world for everyone's need, but not for everyone's greed. Usually we mourn the decline of the large animals, the charismatic ones that you all know, like the black rhinoceros, an elephant, and blue whale, California condor, and so forth. But we tend to forget the many invertebrates, the insects, and mites, and tiny worms, which are also disappearing. And you also tend to forget the plants, although Dr. Schultes pointed out this morning. As a matter of fact, Noah forgot them too, because he didn't take any on his ark. Yet even the most insignificant organism really represents an essential genetic storehouse for our future. It offers humankind potential new foods, potential new drugs, and other services which we will need. So I believe in the final analysis, the battle is really less to save, let's say, the giant panda than to shape new attitudes toward the natural world. We need to readjust values from thoughtless exploitation to love and respect for the land. Today's most urgent issue is not some of the things you've heard about, whether it's nuclear weapons or pollution or whatever. It's to conserve the diversity of life. I think it's essential that we leave future generations with options, that we make them inheritors of this planet, not just survivors on it. Now, the conservation movement has been led mostly by naturalists both professional and amateur. It is they who've uh, established national parks, created public concern, done the research, and so forth. 
I personally find great contentment in exciting in doing something beyond myself, not just for myself, to do something for society, and that is to help save some of the resources for future generations. I also take pleasure in fulfilling a moral obligation to help protect other species who share this planet with us. However, conservation is such a complex economic, cultural, social problem that it needs far more than a few ecological missionaries such as Dr. Wilson and Dr. Schultes. It really needs a popular movement, one that includes politicians and journalists, artists, students, businessmen, everyone. In other words, the conservation movement must grow out of the will of the people. We are really now in a turning point in our existence. We don't have two Earths, one to squander and one to treasure. We must stop thinking that science can solve everything for us if we just throw enough money at it. We must stop thinking that our grandchildren will be okay no matter how wasteful and destructive we are. Remember that extinction is forever. There is no opportunity to correct mistakes once species are gone. We can't really afford the luxury of ignoring the problem. The responsibility is ours. So you might ask, oh, what can we do? What can you do? For one thing, be aware of the issues and think globally. You can take political action. You can join conservation groups. You can donate money. You can become professionally involved. There's room for everyone, not just biologists. You need environmental lawyers, fundraisers, administrators, and of course also the butterfly fanatics. I think we need to do something. Uh, no one these days can just afford to merely take up space on this crowded planet. So if there's a message that I have, is that we have a shared burden. We must work for and have faith in conservation, because if we don't have that, we don't have faith in our future. I like to quote words spoken by an American Indian in 1855 by Chief Seattle. Quote, what is man without the beasts? If all the beasts were gone, man would die from a great loneliness of spirit, for whatever happens to the beasts also happens to man. All things are connected. What befalls the earth befalls the sons of the earth. Thank you. My name is John Nepper, and I'm from Sheridan, Wyoming. In the 1970s, there was a film entitled Say Goodbye, in which it, it referred to the extinction of species and a naturalist from Australia, a conservationist, came on and he stated that we were beyond the point of no return and that what mankind had already done in terms of damage, not only to the remarkable species that we know, but also to the small ones on which the environmental systems are based, the damage was so severe that, that perhaps there was no coming back and that we would truly destroy the earth and that it was only a matter of time. And maybe delaying that time due to the efforts of conservationists, but only a matter of time before we destroyed the Earth itself. Do oh. you believe that? And if not, why or why not? 
No, if I believed it, I wouldn't be out there fighting. Uh, it may be a romantic illusion uh, that one is fighting for, but as long as there's something left, I feel there's hope and one should do the best one can. And I think it is essential that governments recognize this fact and use some of the money they have, not just for themselves, but for other countries as well, which can't afford it, because it is obvious that all the countries are now interconnected economically. And when you destroy the resource of one country, you have poverty, and poverty leads to social unrest and other problems. Okay, thank you. Steve Shore from Wisconsin. I'm wondering if you've ever done any research in preserving the California condor? No, I've done very little research except in Alaska, uh, in the United States. One reason being that there are many, many capable organizations and biologists working in the uh, United States, whereas many third world countries don't even have one, and I feel I can more effectively contribute there. Young lady in the center. Um, you said two things in your speech just now, that you can't solve the conservation problem by throwing money at it, but also that um, monetary contributions are necessary um, to the continuation of conservation. Um, how do you justify those two, the discrepancy? Well, even biologists need a salary. <laughs> uh, no, you need a certain amount of money, obviously, but much of the damage, much of the destruction is done through carelessness, through poor planning. And somebody has to go, for example, to another country and plan, should there be a dam or shouldn't there be a dam? And if that were done more rationally, not for a quick return, but thinking not for next year, but for the next 100 years, as Gandhi said, there's enough for people's need. It's just the greed that has done such a tremendous amount of damage in recent years. Um, I'm Beth Neistat from Columbia, South Carolina. You were talking about um, more well-known animals like the California condor, the blue whale, that are becoming extinct because humans feel a need to kill them. But what about the 20,000 or so um, invertebrate and plants or whatever that you were talking about that are going extinct every year? What's causing them to go extinct, and is there really anything we can do about it, or is it just a natural process? Well, many of the small, what seem to be insignificant species, we cannot do anything about because we don't even know they exist yet. So all one can do is protect large areas in reserves with a hope that you protect as large percentage of these small creatures as possible. The large ones are the ones that draw attention, of course. That's what we have an emotional response to. But they are often far less significant in the functioning of an ecosystem than the small ones. But still, we save them as symbols of a system. The giant panda is a, symbols of, a symbol of China's mountains. And the place would be much emptier without it. But if it disappeared, it wouldn't have much ecological impact. Thank you. 